if you don't recognize me, <coughs> excuse me, I'll explain my voice in just a minute. Uh, I'm Pastor Brian. I am usually at South Street Campus, and it's uh, fun to be with you here today, especially on a day with child dedications. What happened to my voice is this past week I caught some sort of bug and lost it completely, just starting to come back. So just pretend that I'm, if you're a basketball fan, just pretend I'm Doc Rivers uh, coaching <laughs> the Celtics. Some of you might know that my father was a pastor for over 60 years. And in the churches I grew up in, we always had Sunday night church. We had Sunday morning church, and we had Sunday night church. And if you could probably imagine, as a 10 to 12-year-old boy, Sunday night church was not exactly one of my favorite things. For one thing, you'd miss the very end of football games you're watching Sunday afternoon. I didn't like that. As long as you had to miss some of your favorite shows that were on Sunday night, like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Everybody remember that show? <laughs> Marlon Perkins, right? Awesome show. We'd have to miss that. And it was hard to stay awake at Sunday night church. And it was bad form, evidently, for the pastor's kid to fall asleep at Sunday night church. So my mom was very vigilant about that. But my brother and I eventually found the secret to staying awake in church when you're sleepy. Okay, here's the secret. You can use that today if you need to. And that is, look around until you find somebody else who's starting to fall asleep doing the old head bob, and it's so funny, it keeps you awake for the rest of the service. <laughs> but, uh, we used to have, my dad used to have a time of uh, sharing testimonies at Sunday night church. We call them faith stories today. People could stand up and just share what God was doing in their lives. And one night, <coughs> excuse me, a lady stood up uh, like two rows right behind where we were sitting, and I didn't recognize her, so she had to be new. It was a small church, and she gave her faith story. Uh, I don't remember in detail, but she was a brand new believer, just had come to Christ, through, I think through a women's Bible study, um, first time in church, first weekend in church, uh, and how she ended her story. She ended by saying, I know I have a heck of a lot of changing to do, but with God's help, I'm going to change. Only she didn't say heck of a. <laughs> she used a word you're not supposed to use in church unless... You're the preacher, and you're talking about the place no one wants to go when they die. And my brother and I were just like beside ourselves with glee. That was the most fun thing we'd heard in a long time. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, yeah, she sure does. She doesn't know how to talk in church. <laughs> but looking back from my perspective now, I think it might have been one of the most honest and heartfelt faith stories that I've ever heard. Now, today we're going to dig into what that kind of change looks like and where it comes from. We're in Romans chapter 8. A lot of you know we have uh, started two weeks ago this new series called The Greatest Chapter. Uh, last week we had a guest speaker, John Kelly. If you didn't get to hear Pastor Kelly, go back on YouTube, search it, listen. Powerful message he brought to our church family. But we started by talking about two words. Uh, Paul began that chapter by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those two words. No condemnation. And I use this at South Street. I'll use it again today. It's an illustration of a bucket and a ball. What Paul's saying is that when we are in Christ, our position has changed. Everything has changed. We are now in Christ. We have no condemnation because we are covered by his righteousness. What's true about Jesus is now true about us because we're in the bucket. Okay, remember that imagery. We'll come back to it over and over again. Paul's telling us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have no condemnation. His righteousness is ours. We receive new life, uh, new identity, and new destiny. And we live then by a new operating system. 
And that operating system he calls the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our passage today. Romans 8, I'm going to read through 5, 5 through 11, so you can watch it on the screens or look in your Bibles. Listen to what Paul says. <coughs> he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I'll explain flesh and spirit in just a minute. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive, is life because of righteousness. If, and if... uh, The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, we're used to thinking of the world in terms of opposites. We divide things into categories like introverts and extroverts. How many of you identify yourself as an introvert? Okay, I'm kind of with you. Uh, It might slightly bother you that the room is filled with other people. Um, I'm perfectly happy by myself. If you're an extrovert, you like being around crowds of people, two kinds of people. Or you, we think of Republicans and Democrats. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. <laughs> or we think of Cubs fans and Sox fans. Again, not going to ask you to raise your hands. Or there are Brussels sprout lovers and Brussels sprout haters. How many of you are Brussels sprout lovers? You can eat those things. Okay? Look at the hands. How many of you are Brussels sprout haters? Okay. I'm a hater. Started when I was like six or seven years old. My mom used to make us eat our vegetables. Most of the time I could sort of hack my way through that. But one day she made Brussels sprouts. I'm only six, six or seven. And we had to eat the vegetables before we left the table. And I told her, I, I don't like these. She said, you have to eat your vegetables. I said, Mom, if I eat these, ve- those, these things, I'm going to be sick. I think she thought I was bluffing. She said, eat your vegetables. So I, I took a bite, one bite of a Brussels sprout, and I got sick right on my plate, right on the table, and that discussion ended. She never made me eat them again. (laughs) I actually found out uh, that there is science behind this. There's actually a a genetic predisposition that some people have to a chemical that's in Brussels sprouts that just makes you gag. I have people tell me, no, you haven't had my Brussels sprouts. I make them a certain way, you're going to love them. I said, no, you can wrap that thing in bacon. You can coat them in dark chocolate. I'm still going to gag because I have that genetic predisposition. So here's that Paul says there's only two kinds of people in the world. He said those who live according to the spirit and those who live according to the flesh. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. Now when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's using an ordinary Greek word for flesh, the flesh you have on your body. But he gives it a completely new meaning. He's not talking about this kind of flesh. He's talking about Um, our fallen and rebellious human nature. Uh, He's pointing to a a comprehensive set of beliefs, attitudes, values, and the behavior that comes from those that that come from the desires of the self, my selfish desires. And they run in direct opposition to God. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness. 
Maybe you can think back to a time when that was you, or you know someone now who thinks, oh, it's all just foolishness. Paul says, here's what then comes of that in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's quite a riff he went on there. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I think this is an interesting, interesting list if you read through it. We read through and see things like sexual morality, idolatry, drunkenness, orgies. We're like, yep, that's the flesh. That's the things of the flesh. Good thing I don't do those things. And then we see things like enmity, strife, divisions, enmity, or envy, and fits of anger. And we, and we, we well, oh, that's getting a little, you know. Paul says all that comes from living according to the flesh, comes from our fallen human nature. And then he says there are those who walk according to the Spirit. Now here he's talking about those who have put their faith in Christ, who received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, In him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That happens at the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And then Paul summarizes in Galatians what walking according to the Spirit looks like. He says, and the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit in your life, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So Paul is teaching us that we were once in the flesh, we were once outside the bucket, under condemnation. Now we are in Christ. Our position has changed. We have no condemnation. Therefore, we are in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as our operating system. Now, it's important to say here that even though we've been set free from condemnation, we've been set free from the flesh, our sinful nature has not been totally eradicated. It still operates some way, somehow, in the background of our hearts and lives. Let me give you a couple of examples. Not long ago, I was driving somewhere, had to merge onto a uh, uh, highway, and so I kind of had to wait my turn, and I saw a space coming, but I needed to accelerate rapidly because I didn't want to make that guy, the next guy slow down. Because, you know, you hate it when somebody makes you slow down. So I, I revved it up, got into my lane, but in revving it up and accelerating, I got a little bit close to the car that was in front. Not really close, like two car lengths, you know, not scary close, but just two car lengths. But I looked up, and the person driving that car gave me the old one-finger salute. <laughs> I'm like, really? And I, just for a moment, I felt, I felt my flesh, the old nature, <laughs> wanting to do something very fleshly. <laughs> but I, instead, I prayed for that. No, I didn't. I, I didn't do anything didn't do anything, but eventually I passed that person, just glanced over, and it was like a 70-year-old lady. I'm not kidding. Somebody's grandma doing that. How about another example? Let's take Pastor Andrew, for example. I told you I was going to do this. You know, Pastor Andrew. Uh, you guys know Pastor Andrew. You love Pastor Andrew. You know he was born and raised in England, uh, which means he grew up British. He grew up eating things like fish and chips, Yorkshire pudding, and something called shepherd's pie. He understands the whole royal family thing, can explain it to you if you need him to. 
But did you know that a couple years ago, Andrew became an American citizen? He did. Right. He loves bald eagles now, things like that. No, but he, he went through the entire process, included a written test, right, about American history and the structure of our government. I mean, Andrew can quote the entire Constitution, all 27 amendments, if you ask him. I'm just kidding about that. But he, I'll guarantee he knows more about it than I do, right? He had to study that stuff. Now, Andrew is an American, but somewhere deep inside, he still has a soft spot for the queen. We know this, right? And we love to remind him often of his new identity. Okay, let's dig in here. First, Paul talks about the way of the flesh. The way of the flesh. When I was a junior in college, my roommate Mike and I were selected as hall counselors, which meant the administration thought we were sure and responsible. Uh, late one night of that year, junior year, we got hungry, and the only place open to get something to eat was our student union across the campus, open all night. So we had to walk, we walked through the academic building, which was open all the time, because it was a shortcut. And we're walk, just walking through the hallway to get something to eat. And out of nowhere, my friend Mike goes, you think I can touch the ceiling? The ceiling tile, like eight foot, whatever. I said, I knew he was a swimmer, I was a basketball player, I said, I don't think you can jump that high. So he jumped up, instead of touching the ceiling, he punched it and broke the ceiling tile and just fell right down. And then he looked at me like, I dare you. And I knew I could jump higher than him. So I jumped up and I punched one too. And we broke and fell down. And we laughed. thought that was the funniest thing in the world. We got our food and went back. Never thought of anything about it. Next morning, about 10 o'clock, we got back to our room. And there was a note taped to our dorm room door. And it said the dean wanted to see us in his office. Uh-oh. <laughs> Busted. Somebody must have seen what we had done. We walked into his office. He's behind his desk. He goes, what were you guys doing in the academic building at 1 in the morning? And we just confessed. Oh, we're sorry. It was a stupid thing to do. We shouldn't have done it. We'll pay for the tiles. We'll pay. He goes, you guys did it? I thought you just might have seen who did it. <laughs> well, then he let us off easy by letting us pay for the tiles. It could have been a lot worse. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds into the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds into the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind in the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says three things here about the way of the flesh. First, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, the word he uses here, phroneo, a Greek word, means more than just to think about something. It, it means um, a, a whole way of understanding yourself, the world around you, um, more like a comprehensive worldview, right? So going back to the ceiling tiles, why did my friend and I do that? Why did we break those tiles? What were we thinking about? One morning, could argue nothing, but we were thinking, were we thinking about God? Were we thinking about what would please God, what God would want from our lives? Were we thinking about the maintenance people would have to clean up the mess that we just made? Were we thinking about who was going to have to pay for that? No. We were thinking about ourselves. We did it because we could, because it seemed like fun. They made us feel cool and powerful, whatever. That's what Paul means by living according to the flesh. He says, the mind set on the flesh thinks wrongly about God. God doesn't exist. God doesn't care. God wants me to be happy, which is an interesting discussion, by the way. He wants a lot more than that for you. Or the mind set on the flesh thinks wrongly about ourselves. I'm in control of my life. 
I deserve what I want. I need to speak my own truth. The mindset in the flesh as a person whose life is shaped more by the culture around them than by the Holy Spirit of God that wants to dwell in them. Secondly, Paul says, to set the mind in the flesh is death. What does he mean? Well, I serve as an on-call chaplain at Del Nor Northwestern Hospital, which means several weeks every year I'm on call. So if someone needs a chaplain late at night or on weekends, I get the call. Several of us do that. And the calls are never good. Um, a while back, I got a call late one night. Uh, ER nurse said someone had expired. That's the language they use when they call you. Had expired in the ER, uh, and the family asked for a chaplain. So I drove over. The, as I got there, the nurse said, 66-year-old man, massive heart attack. Uh, couldn't save him. So I walk in the room. I see lying on the examining table, with it still intubated, with a uh, sheet over him, a very, very large man. Next to him grieving is a woman who uh, turned out to be his wife. Uh, and the, the man, I mean, I, even lying down, I could tell 350, maybe 400 pounds, very, very large man. And the, the woman who's grieving is grieving, and through her tears, she's saying, how could this happen? How could this happen? How could this happen? Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm a pastor. My role at that moment is not to try to answer her question directly, not to explain the physical pathology and the behavioral patterns that are likely to produce a heart attack. It's not my role. My role is to offer care, spiritual guidance, and a prayer, which I did. But the truth is, if a human being practices unhealthy habits long enough, a heart attack's not really a surprise. Or another story. A man came to see me a number of years ago in my office at South Street, uh, he'd been married and divorced three times, had children with all three women, and had recently gotten into an affair with a co-worker, and there was a pregnancy as a result of that relationship. His life, his finances, his families were a complete mess. And he looked at me with a straight face and said, why is God doing this to me? Paul is saying that if we set our minds on the things of the flesh, that is, if we assume wrong things about God, if we assume wrong things about ourselves, and live that way long enough, the inevitable result is spiritual death. Thirdly, Paul says, the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God. He says in verse 7, for the mind that is set in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the word for hostile here is a word you use for a hated enemy. What does it mean to be hostile toward God? My seminary days, uh, I had to serve as a, um, a student chaplain in a large Chicago hospital. I was assigned to an oncology ward, which meant when I went in a couple days a week, I had to walk cold turkey into rooms where I did not know the person, but they were in some stage of treatment for cancer. One day I got there, a nurse said, you need to go to that room. And I walked in. I could see immediately a, a, a man who was in his late 70s or so, very sick, gaunt, skin had that yellowish-gray color that I eventually learned is, is the final stages of cancer. As I walked in, I hadn't said a word yet. He, looked, he lifted his head up and said, who the blank are you? I was, I was taken back a bit, but I started to stumble through. I, 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 I'm, I'm the student chaplain. As soon as I got the word chaplain out, he again cursed and said, I don't need a blankety-blank chaplain. And I just backed out of the room. Okay. That memory makes me sad now because... When I went back two days later, he was gone. And even though he was hostile toward God, toward me, he needed the chaplain. And he needed God. 
Paul says, for the mindset in the flesh is hostile to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you might be thinking, if you're following along, wait a second. Are you saying that a person who's not a believer in Christ cannot do good things? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Most certainly, a non-believer can do good things, do them all the time. What Paul is saying is that God is concerned about much more than the doing of good things. He's concerned about the condition of our eternal soul. And if we are not in the bucket, if we're not in Christ, we do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and God cannot be pleased. Secondly, Paul then teaches us about the way of the Spirit. The way of the Spirit. Some years ago, I did a wedding of a young couple at church. And uh, as I got to know the couple, the young man uh, uh, was a brand new Christian, brand new believer, just, just within uh, a couple of months. And he, uh, as he told me about his life, he had said he had struggled most of his life with a real temper problem, anger, rage. Uh, and it had destroyed a lot of things in his life, relationships, lost jobs over it, fistfights, friendships. Um, but he was committed to this new life. He was very invested in his spiritual growth. And that was a good thing. They got married. A couple of months later, I decided to visit them, see how they were doing. Sat at his kitchen table. And how's it going? And he said, everything's going good. In fact, the weirdest thing is happening. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you remember I told you about my anger and all that? I said, yeah. He goes, well, uh, people have been telling me recently that I'm not doing that so much anymore. In fact, something happens at work or something happened here at home, or, and I just don't, I don't get as angry anymore. Even my wife says I'm more patient than I used to be. He said, it's crazy. I said, uh, Tom, I don't want to uh, spook you. or anything. It's not crazy. That's the Holy Spirit that lives in you. He said, he looked kind of confused. Because he was a brand new Christian, so I tried to explain to him the role of the Holy Spirit. And then I quoted for him from Galatians 5 that we read moments ago. I said, uh, the, the um, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And then he said, that's so cool. I said, yes, it is. And that's what God wants for us. That's what he's doing in you. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds in the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind in the flesh is death, but to set the mind in the Spirit is life and peace. Two things Paul says about life in the Spirit. First, those who, set their, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's the opposite of the flesh. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth who reminds of everything that he taught. So Paul's saying that the life of a believer, a follower of Christ, is shaped by the spirit of truth. A mindset in the spirit is shaped by the truth about God. God is holy. God is just. God is good. God is personal. A mindset on the spirit understands the truth about oneself. I'm not holy. I'm not always good. I need to be made new. A mindset on the spirit is shaped by the truth about our new position in Christ, that we have new identity, new purpose, and new destiny. Secondly, he says, the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. That's what my friend was experiencing, that he was no longer was a slave to his old nature. He still had it, but he wasn't a slave to it. So he wasn't a slave to his anger and to his rage any longer. The spirit was working to bring about peace in his life. And then the third thing we see in this passage Paul talks about the indwelling spirit. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, now that's an interesting flip. He's been saying you're in Christ. Now he says if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life 
because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, listen to that. Were you aware of the Holy Spirit's role in the resurrection of Christ from the dead? He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that who dwells in you. Now, the word translated dwells here just means to inhabit or to make oneself at home. He's saying that when we come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit inhabits us, makes his home in our lives, in us. And when he moves in, he wants to change things. Sometimes he just wants to move the furniture around a bit. Sometimes he wants to throw stuff all the way out and get rid of it. But he needs our permission to do that. He wants to make change. Back to the bucket. Notice, not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says the indwelling Spirit does two things for us. First, gives us life through righteousness. He says, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the purity of Jesus is given to us by faith. We're both filled and clothed by the goodness, grace, and purity of Jesus. We're in the bucket. Now, sometimes we think that when we put our faith in Christ, we begin to, be, begin to live by the spirit, our lives are going to be righteous, but, you know, kind of boring and dull. That's what my mom thought. My mom became a believer at age 19, and she was convinced. She knew she needed Jesus in her life, but she was pretty convinced her life is going to be boring and dull and no fun from that point on. No makeup, no dancing, no fun. And what she found was the opposite. What she found was Jesus gave her more than she ever could have imagined. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, he said. That's what it means to be in the bucket. Secondly, he says the indwelling spirit gives us the power of resurrection. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. During my college years, I uh, met a guy named Charlie my freshman year, lived in the same hall. We weren't friends, just acquaintances. <coughs> but what I knew about Charlie um, from a distance wasn't good. He liked to party. Um, Drank a lot, smoked funny smelling cigarettes. His girlfriend made her, almost lived in his room, um, cussed like crazy. And he was one of those guys that my parents warned me about before I went to college. Uh, but we weren't close, but we were, you know, we knew of each other. Well, we all, we graduated, moved on in our lives, and I never thought about Charlie again for about 15 years. About 15 years later, I'm reading my alumni magazine, looking at the class notes just to see who's doing what, and I see his name. And here was the sentence that it said, it said, Charlie and his wife are beginning their first term as Wycliffe Bible translators. I think I dropped the magazine. I think I hollered for my wife because she didn't even know me, me at that time in my life. Charlie, my, 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 my old friend Charlie is a Bible translator, really? So then I remembered somehow that he had been an English major, so it made a weird kind of sense. Well, it took me several years, but I finally found a way to get in contact with Charlie because he was translating a language that was in a very sensitive part of the world. It was, it was secret where he was. Got in touch with him through email. Asked him his story. He told me his story. I shared some of my story with him. And the conversation ended 
with Charlie saying this. He said, who would have ever thought that God could use a couple of schlubs like us, he said. That phrase just cracks me up to this day. A couple of schlubs like us, he said. The point here is that there's only one power in the universe that can turn my old friend Charlie into a Bible translator. There's only one power in the universe that can turn a schlub like me into a preacher of God's word. There's only one power in the universe that can enable you to live the life, the new life, that Christ has already given you. Only one power in the world. And it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and dwells in you. Will you bow with me as I close? Lord, we thank you today for this, this, your, this your word, for this great chapter full of so many truths. It's hard to even scratch the surface. Remind us that when we put our faith in you, we not only get our sins forgiven, we are made new. Remind us that the Holy Spirit, this mysterious power that raised you from the dead, also gives us the power to live this new life. We pray these things in Jesus' name.